of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Maugham, Chapter 113. At the beginning of the last week in August, Philip entered upon his duties in the district. They were arduous, for he had to attend on an average three confinements a day. The patient had obtained a card from the hospital some time before, and when her time came it was taken to the porter by a messenger, generally a little girl, who was then sent across the road to the house in which Philip lodged. At night the porter, who had a latch-key, himself came over and awoke Philip. It was mysterious then to get up in the darkness and walk through the deserted streets of the south side. At those hours it was generally the husband who had brought the card. If there had been a number of babies before, he took it for the most part with surly indifference, but if newly married he was nervous and then sometimes strove to allay his anxiety by getting drunk. Often there was a mile or more to walk, during which Philip and the messenger discussed the conditions of labor and the cost of living. Philip learned about the various trades which were practiced on that side of the river. He inspired confidence in the people among whom he was thrown, and during the long hours that he waited in a stuffy room, the woman in labor lying on a large bed that took up half of it, her mother and the midwife talked to him as naturally as they talked to one another. The circumstances in which he had lived during the last two years had taught him several things about the life of the very poor, which it amused them to find he knew, and they were impressed because he was not deceived by their little subterfuges. He was kind, and he had gentle hands, and he did not lose his temper. They were pleased because he was not above drinking a cup of tea with them, and when the dawn came and they were still waiting, they offered him a slice of bread and dripping. He was not squeamish and could eat most things now with a good appetite. Some of the houses he went to, in filthy courts off a dingy street, huddled against one another without light or air, and merely squalid. But others, unexpectedly, though dilapidated, with worm-eaten floors and leaky roofs, had the grand air. You found in them old balusters exquisitely carved, and the walls had still their paneling. These were thickly inhabited. One family lived in each room, and in the daytime there was the incessant noise of children playing in the court. The old walls were the breeding place of vermin. The air was so foul that often, feeling sick, Philip had to light his pipe. The people who dwelt here lived from hand to mouth. Babies were unwelcome. The man received them with surly anger, the mother with despair. It was one more mouth to feed, and there was little enough wherewith to feed those already there. Philip often discerned the wish that the child might be born dead or might die quickly. He delivered one woman of twins, a source of humor to the facetious, and when she was told she burst into a long, shrill, a, a, a long, shrill wail of misery. Her mother said outright, I don't know how they're going to feed him. Maybe the Lord will see fit to take him to himself, said the midwife. Philip caught sight of the husband's face as he looked at the tiny pair lying side by side, and there was a ferocious sullenness in it which startled him. He felt the family assembled there, a hideous resentment against those poor Adams who had come into, into the world unwished for, and he had a suspicion that if he did not speak firmly, an accident would occur. Accidents occurred often. Mothers overlay their babies, and perhaps errors of diet were not always the result of carelessness.
I shall come every day, he said. I warn you that if anything happens to them, there'll have to be an inquest. The father made no reply, but he gave Philip a scowl. There was murder in his soul. Bless their little hearts, said the grandmother. What should happen to them? The great difficulty was to keep the mothers in bed for ten days, which was the minimum upon which the hospital practice insisted. It was awkward to look after the family. No one would see to the children without payment, and the husband grumbled because his tea was not right when he came home, tired from his work and hungry. Philip had heard that the poor helped one another, but woman after woman complained to him that she could not get anyone in to clean up and to see the children's dinner without paying for the service, and she could not afford to pay. By listening to the women as they had talked, and by chance remarked from which he could deduce much that was left unsaid, Philip learned how little there was in common between the poor and the classes above them. They did not envy their betters, for the life was too different, and they had an ideal of ease which made the existence of the middle class seem formal and stiff. Moreover, they had a certain contempt for them because they were soft and did not work with their hands. The proud merely wished to be left alone, but the majority looked upon the well-to-do as people to be exploited. They knew what to say in order to get such advantages as the charitable put at their disposal, and they accepted benefits as a right which came to them from the folly of their superiors and their own astuteness. They bore the curate with contemptuous indifference, but the district visitor excited their bitter hatred. She came in and opened your windows without so much as a by your leave or with your leave, and me with my bronchitis, enough to give me my death of cold. She poked her nose into corners, and if she didn't say the place was dirty, you saw that she thought right enough. And it's all very well for them, as, as servants, but I'd like to see what she'd make of her own room if she had four children and had to do the cooking and mend their clothes and wash them. Philip discovered that the greatest tragedy of life to these people was not separation or death, that was natural, and the grief of it could be assuaged with tears, but loss of work. He saw a man come home one afternoon, three days after his wife's confinement, and tell her that he had been dismissed. He was a builder, and at that time work was slack. He stated the fact and sat down to his tea. Oh, Jim, she said. The man ate stolidly some mess which had been stewing in a saucepan against his coming. He stared at his plate. His wife looked at him two or three times with little startled glances and then quite suddenly began to cry. The builder was an uncouth little fellow with a rough, weather-beaten face and a long white scar on his forehead. He had large, stubby hands. Presently, he pushed aside his plate as if he must give up the effort to force himself to eat and turned a fixed gaze out of the window. The room was at the top of the house, at the back, and one saw nothing but sullen clouds. The silence seemed heavy with despair. Philip felt that there was nothing to be said. He could only go. And as he walked away wearily, for he had been up most of the night, his heart was filled with rage against the cruelty of the world. He knew the hopelessness of the search for work and the desolation which is harder to bear than hunger. He was thankful not to have to believe in God, 
for then such a condition of things would be intolerable. One could reconcile oneself to existence only because it was meaningless. It seemed to Philip that the people who spent their time in helping the poorer classes erred because they sought to remedy things which would harass them if themselves had to endure them without thinking that they did it not in the least disturb those who were used to them. The poor did not want large airy rooms. They suffered from cold, for their food was not nourishing and their circulation bad. Space gave them a feeling of chilliness, and they wanted to burn as little coal as need be. There was no hardship for several to sleep in one room. They preferred it. They were never alone for a moment. From the time they were born to the time they died, and loneliness oppressed them. They enjoyed the promiscuity in which they dwelt, and the constant noise of their surroundings pressed upon their ears unnoticed. They did not feel the need of taking a bath constantly, and Philip often heard them speak with indignation of the necessity to do so with which they were faced on entering the hospital. It was both an affront and a discomfort. They wanted chiefly to be left alone. Then, if the man was in regular work, life went easily and was not without its pleasures. There was plenty of time for gossip. After the day's work, a glass of beer was very good to drink. The streets were a constant source of entertainment. If you wanted to read, there was Reynolds or The News of the World. But there, you couldn't make out how the time did fly. The truth was, and that's a fact, you was a rare one for reading when you was a girl. But what with one thing and another, you didn't get no time now, not even to read the paper. The usual practice was to pay three visits after the confinement, and one Sunday Philip went to see a patient at the dinner hour. She was up for the first time. I couldn't stay in bed no longer. I really couldn't. I'm not one for idling, and it gives me the fidgets to be there and doing nothing all day long. So I said to Herb, I'm just going to get up and cook your dinner for you. Herb was sitting at table with his knife and fork already in his hands. He was a young man with an open face and blue eyes. He was earning good money, and as things went, the couple were in easy circumstances. They had been married a few months, and were both delighted with the rosy boy who lay in the cradle at the foot of the bed. There was a savory smell of beefsteak in the room, and Philip's eyes turned to the range. "'I was just going to dish up this minute,' said the woman. "'Fire away,' said Philip. "'I'll just have a look at the sun and air, and I'll take myself off.' Husband and wife laughed at Philip's expression, and Herb, getting up, went over with Philip to the cradle. He looked at his baby proudly. "'There doesn't seem much wrong with him, does there?' said Philip. He took up his hat, and by this time Herb's wife had dished up the beefsteak and put on the table a plate of green peas. "'You're going to have a nice dinner,' smiled Philip. "'He's only in—' of a Sunday, and I'd like to have something special for him, so as he shall miss his home when he's out at work. I suppose you'd be above sitting down and having a bit of dinner with us, said Herb. Oh, Herb, said, said his wife, in a shocked tone. Not if you ask me, answered Philip, with his attractive smile. Well, that's what I call friendly. I knew he wouldn't take offense, Polly. Just get another plate, my girl. Polly was flustered, and she thought Herb a regular caution. You never knew what ideas he'd get into his head next, but she got a plate and wiped it quickly with her apron and took a new knife and fork from the chest of drawers where her best cutlery rested among her best clothes. There was a jug of stout on the table, and Herb shared of the... and Herb 
poured Philip out a glass. He wanted to give him the lion's share of the beefsteak, but Philip insisted that they should share alike. It was a sunny room with two windows that reached to the floor. It had been the parlor of a house, which at one time was, if not fashionable, at least respectable. It might have been inhabited fifty years before by a well-to-do tradesman or an officer on half pay. Herb had been a football player before he married, and there were photographs on the wall of various teams in self-conscious attitudes with neatly plastered hair, the captain seated proudly in the middle holding a cup. There were other signs of prosperity, photographs of the relations of Herb and his wife in Sunday clothes, on the chimney piece an elaborate arrangement of shells stuck on a miniature rock, and on each side mugs, a present from South End, and gothic letters with pictures of a pier on a parade on them. Herb was something of a character. He was a non-union man and expressed himself with indignation at the efforts of the union to force him to join. The union wasn't no good to him. He never found no difficulty in getting work, and there was good wages for anyone as at a head on his shoulders and wasn't above putting in as anything as come as would come his way. Polly was timorous. If she was in, she enjoyed the union. The last time there was a strike, she was expecting him to be brought back in an ambulance every time he went out. She turned to Philip. He's that obstinate. There's no doing anything with him. Well, what I say is, it's a free country and I won't be dictated to. It's no good saying it's a free country, said Polly. That won't prevent them bashing your head in if they get the chance. When they had finished, Philip passed his pouch over to Herb and they lit their pipes. Then he got up, for a call might be waiting for him at his rooms, and shook hands. He saw that it had given them pleasure that he shared their meal, and they saw that he had thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, goodbye, sir, said Herb, and I hope we shall have as nice a doctor next time the missus disgraces herself. Go on with you, Herb, she retorted. How do you know there's going to be a next time? End of chapter 113